This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Crunch versus Simulation. The Red Barn Murder. Mid to late 80s Horror Essentials. And those darn monoliths. Gloomier, A Night at Hemlock Hall by Atlas Games is now live on Kickstarter. Gloomier is the standalone storytelling sequel to the award-winning Gloom, with even more doom and gloom. What makes Gloomier, Gloomier? A return to the beloved original setting of Gloom's Hemlock Hall. More secrets, more revelations of the ever-so-gothic Wellington Smythe family. Clear story prompts put the focus on arsenic-drenched storytelling. Gloom fans love the guests and stories mechanics. So what does Gloomier bring you? More guests and stories! Compatible with all core Gloom games! Straight from the fiendish mind of original Gloom designer Keith Baker. Plus, the Gloomsters at Atlas Games are terribly tickled to unveil the Gloom Griefcase! Ha 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 ha! A deluxe storage case to store all your Gloom games. Plus, 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 all backers also receive the Gloom Chronicles a campaign-style mini-expansion for use with any core Gloom game. So dare to enter Hemlock Hall and see what delightful disaster awaits! Back Gloomier on Kickstarter now through April 8th. For more info, go to atlas-games.com or follow at Atlas Games on Twitter. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the friendly confines of the Gaming Hut. And today in the Gaming Hut, we have our graph paper, we have our big pile of books, and we have our other big pile of books. What's that? One pile of books is, well, it's 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 GURPS uh, everything, really. It's a lot of GURPS whole bunches of GURPS. We've been going to the conventions for years and years. We've accumulated our GURPSes. Some of them are battered and worn. Others barely touched because that's a GURPS collection. The other pile of books, well, the other pile of books is just a bunch of, I don't even know what that is, Robin. That's like math and physics and all manner of stuff. There's the the, the DSM-4 for some reason. This is not a good, I don't like any of these piles. Well, I kind of like the GURPS pile, frankly. The other pile uh, it's just getting on our way. We're going to move it out of the way because we got to talk about a topic that is emblematized somewhat by both of these piles. And the emblematization is often referred to either as crunch as opposed to fluff or as simulation as opposed to narrative or uh, game design. And those, while they overlap in the person of, for example, this giant stack of GURPS books, they're different concepts. And, uh, Robin, we are going to once more do our part for future gamers and for present day talkers in separating concepts, providing them with rigorous definitions that have been factory tested. And anyone who departs from henceforth will be known only as a churl. Is that yes. correct? Is that basically what's going to yes. happen? Churl is as, is well defined as someone who allows definitions to align. Exactly. We all know that. So yeah, I want to spend some time unwinding different ways of talking about and approaching 
uh, system complexity. Why don't we just talk about uh, things on a continuum of uh, complicated to simple? And the reason for that is that there are different sorts of complexities which appeal to people for different reasons. And in particular, I was inspired by uh, beloved Patreon backer Martin Runquist uh, not making a request uh, of the podcast, but just bringing up a topic on Twitter, maybe think of this as something that might do with some further explication, uh, is what what does it mean uh, when uh, we, or more specifically in this case, I, in Robin's Laws of Good Game Mastering, talked about crunchy bits as being a thing that uh, power gamers like. And uh, the definition there is that the the crunchy bit is a unit, a power, uh, which is sort of there is just sort of a catch-all terms for spells and magic and guns and anything that is a, a somewhat complex rule that empowers your character and allows you to feel uh, the uh, sense of uh, dominance over the narrator, uh, narrative and the... <laughs> and possibly uh, the narrator. <laughs> all of these things give you a sense of uh, dominance <laughs> over the, the narrative and... Uh, possibly the other players or definitely the adversaries in the narrative, but they are units of rules that your control of or possession of allows you to feel a sense of power. And uh, when I talk about rules being crunchy and don't claim to have been the first one to use that term, but when I think of things being crunchy, I think of the aesthetic pleasure of complexity, whether that is the pleasure that comes from being able to have this super duper fireball that works in a really complicated way that manages to knock down all of the orcs and the fact that you knew how to be the one who put that on your character sheet and uh, that that sense of power and your interaction with it is part of the pleasure of complexity and a more loosey-goosey narrative system where you just sort of make up what the powers do as you go along is less satisfying to a player with that sense of uh, priorities because it's well, I could just make up anything, but I was clever enough to get this power and use it, and its complexity is part of what makes it fun. And that, to me, is crunch in a way that is different than complexity, right? But the crunch versus uh, fluff dichotomy is talking more about rules versus setting, Yeah, but... Apparently, we just can't say those simple terms. <laughs> we have to uh, say it in a uh, more veiled way that it also is vaguely condescending toward one of the two basic building blocks of role playing. <laughs> well, you know, no, no point in taking a stand if you're not standing on someone's foot. That is, yes, the, if you're not being tendentious, why, right. uh, why define anything? If you're not at all? being a jerk, why are you even on the internet? That's a perfectly <laughs> legitimate question to ask, I suppose. Um, yeah, the, the the general dichotomy between crunch and is, as you say, between mechanics or mechanical options. Uh, some of them might even be something that is uh, a, a subsystem that is not necessarily more mechanically complex, but adds another module, if you will, to the game. The classic example, I guess, would be the psionics module that got tacked onto AD&D way back in the day, maybe even into OD&D back in the day, and is a classic example of crunch because it never even made it into any of the settings, barely. Just every so often, the mind flares would come through and you'd be like, damn it, oh, why are they so powerful? The, the appendix, oh man. <laughs> and uh, that would be great fun and everyone would enjoy it, but that is a... Uh, it's not any more complex or uh, additive. It does not sort of fractally confuse or uh, elaborate upon regular old D&D. It's, it's a whole new side thing, but it's still crunch versus uh, setting material. 
And of course, you can have these things that overlap, for example, in any uh, vampire clan book. One of the big draws was you got new cool disciplines in the back and new cool stuff you could do with the old disciplines and special rights and sub things. And that was very, very crunchy. And it gave exactly that feeling of mastery and ability and the, and the fun of complexity that you talk about. But it also was absolutely interwoven with the setting. Uh, when you said in, in the, you know, splat book for the glass walkers, that glass walkers can do X thus and so. That's part of the setting now because the setting was so beautifully, I will say, uh, interleaved with the crunch. Vampire could sort of produce books that, or, and all of World of Darkness could produce books that were sort of both. And this is overlapping with, but I think distinct from the uh, question from the old days of uh, Usenet of uh, games having three possible uh, design goals, simulation versus narrative emulation versus pure gameplay uh, tactics, if you will. And you can obviously see that uh, crunch can feed any of those things. You can have tactical crunch, which is basically uh, what you get in most D&D. Uh, most D&D simulates nothing. It is not a simulation of anything. A purely simulationist game might move in war game rules or GURPS rules or something of that ilk. And then narrative games, games intended to respond to and evoke narrative, can be quite mechanically sophisticated. Uh in Ray Blades in the Dark or any of the, the modern sort of next generation of story games. Uh, those have got some very uh, cool mechanical Phillips in them. They provide you a sense of, of rules uh, enginery, but they are not necessarily crunchy in the GURPSy sense, and nor are they not attempting to model the narrative. And that's the narrative progression idea. So crunch can apply to all of them. And we see it applied, I think, most archetypically to simulationist games, GURPS, war games, that kind of thing. But in theory, one could be simulating a nonsense world and uh, be very crunchy in the action thereof, right? Right. Because I think uh, I want to talk, first of all, that uh, the overall category here is complexity and that there are different sorts of complexity that are attempting to achieve different aims. Uh, crunch being the aesthetic desire to interact with something with a lot of moving parts that if you do it right, is empowering, and that is related to, but not uh, entirely equivalent with system mastery. And then there uh, is the abstract intellectual exercise of simulation, of wanting to see if you can create a set of mechanics that will model either the real world or a less disappointing world where you can <laughs> still have some <laughs> level of uh, action-adventure or the or, things that happen in general. Or being literature. shot once doesn't put you into physical therapy for a year, for example. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and so crunch is is one uh, aesthetic goal. It's one uh, set of emotions. And the desire to th see things uh, simulated correctly, to see what would really happen, is uh, another one, which is almost sort of more something that operates outside of play. And you will see, of course, that different people have different tastes and different things that they want to simulate uh, realistically. So it may be that, and often I find that it is game masters who are interested in uh, simulation. So that if the game master is arguing, well, this is what would really happen. So I'm going to change the firing into melee rules because I think realistically the uh, player characters should get hit when the archer fires uh, into the melee and misses. And then the uh, 
from a crunch point of view, you might not be interested in that at all, especially if you're the character who's getting hit <laughs> by the arrow the and taking <laughs> additional damage, uh, because your question is not, I want this complexity in order that it feel real to me, because, you know, we're fighting giant centipedes, for goodness sake, but rather to have a whole bunch of handles to hold onto and uh, enjoy its its Baroque uh, lack of realism. And so the question then for designers is not just how complicated do you want to make your game, but why do you want it to be complicated? And this is something that in general, the uh, where the whole audience is has shifted a bit over time. And so what people consider complicated continues to uh, alter so that uh, initially, for example, when Gumshoe came out, uh, the response, well, this is a story game because it's not very complicated. And while those things are also not necessarily congruent, yeah. uh, but now the response is quite often, well, this is kind of, this is very rulesy. And even the people who got onto the Gumshoe wagon early and were asking for more complexity, often those same people, when you give them something less complex, are into that now. So part of uh, the aesthetic desire for complexity in particular changes over time because your uh, the amount of brain space that you have to devote to learning new rules changes and your enjoyment of the pure uh, intricacy of a rule system uh, sort of shifts the seventh or eighth rule system or addition that you adopt. Whereas I think the uh, person who wants a rule set to model something because that appeals to their sense of logic, I think that that is fairly static over time. And you could have uh, a relatively simple system that, for example, uh, very accurately depicts what it's like to be shot with a gun. And so the early simulations were very complicated because it was a question of, well, how many factors can we think about when people fight with armor in uh, in swords? Okay, well, there's the length of the swords, we get strike rank, and we've got different hit locations. So we got to take that into account. But simulation is not a necessary, or, or rather complexity is not a necessary output of the desire to simulate. It just very often is, especially early in the history of role-playing game design. Right. Yeah, your, your chivalry and sorcery era, for example. Uh, and the desires, I think uh, you make an interesting point with not just individuals changing their taste, which of course happens, and it does not always happen in the same direction. I think that we are used to the model of people starting out liking complex games, and as they get busier, they go uh, in a, a simpler direction, because I think that by and large, people start with Dungeons & Dragons, which has always been a relatively complex game, and certainly in 2008, when gumshoe began or i guess even earlier than that 2007 2006 when gumshoe began the the model was third edition which was a even for dungeons and dragons fairly complex model but clearly right now there is a thriving and excitable uh market for pathfinder which is keep D complex keep it crunchy versus fifth edition which is a by and large simpler model of dungeons and dragons but is still Far from the simplest model imaginable, because, of course, there is also a thriving OSR movement, which is as few rules as possible. Anything that couldn't fit into the white box, we're throwing out again, and they are aiming in a different direction. And, and that and I think all three of those audiences enjoy crunch in the sense that they enjoy a fun bit of complexity that you can master. But I feel like they want them aesthetically expressed differently. 
And sometimes the aesthetics are all on the, oh, this is an exotic new monster level, uh, which adds crunch to the world, but is also a, a new setting element. It's a, one of those crunch fluff over, uh, flows that we've talked about, but also, I, I think that people enjoy, you know, hacking and drifting and playing around. I just think that there's an aesthetic joy in monkeying with rule systems that by and large produces more complexity, not less, because no one uh, necessarily looks at a game system and says, let's strip more of it out. What they're trying to do is say, let's add a thing that does what I want it to do more specifically. And that again, might be simulationist, or it might be that they want to add a uh, more tactical uh, options where they want to add, you know, a, a thing that rewards narrative play. Uh, plenty of OSR hacks uh, are are heading in a story game narrativist drift. So I think that you can have, you know, in the same gamer, they can have multiple degrees of crunch and simulation that they want to see. And it's like, you know, us with any other aesthetic choice. Some days you're in the mood for modern art. Some days you're in the mood for classical art. Some days you want uh, shrimp. Some days you want pizza. It's just a big beautiful menu of options here in the in the in the in the world of capitalism and we got lots of stuff to pick right and you mentioned that people don't generally kit bash things by stripping out detail and complexity uh, but the fact is they do that without really admitting it to themselves and and often uh, without letting go of their perceived desire for aesthetic complexity and ornateness for its own sake. So, for example, there are a lot of people who feel great to know that there are encumbrance rules in a given game, but also ignore them in play. Yeah, but never use them. <laughs> never use them. It makes them feel good. It makes them feel that the world is real. This is being taken care of. But then in practice, they skip them. Or, right. you know, or, you know, fill in the blanks for a lot of other games that are uh, either accurately or simulating reality, or simulating their incorrect imagining of reality, or mm -hmm. uh, taking into account 15 different factors in a way where each one of them is realistic, but you put them all together and they're not. And even today, uh, you know, for example, RuneQuest is big again. Chaosium is moving a lot of uh, RuneQuest, and it's not just to existing players, but rather we're recapitulating the old pattern of somebody plays D&D, and then once they've played a lot of D&D, they go, well, what else is there? And then the, the question, what else are you looking for, is uh, sometimes answered by uh, Gumshoe or sometimes answered by whatever other game. And sometimes people go, well, there isn't enough separate hit locations. And what about armor <laughs> for each location? And what about strike ranks for weapons? And so there are still people getting into the simulationist complexity of uh, RuneQuest. And then... A lot of them are also ignoring that complexity when they play and feeling that they're playing a complex game when, in fact, they are enjoying a simpler version that they're homebrewing uh, as they uh, go along. And so I guess that is bringing us into a whole other topic of perceived taste <laughs> and what you will talk yourself into saying you want and what you actually want at the table and how they differ. And Ken... That would be a whole different segment, wouldn't it? That would be a whole different segment. And I think that given that we have managed to have a crunchy simulation of a discussion of the difference between crunch and simulation and are heading into a different hut or into a different topic. That means that uh, this has to be uh, the end of this segment. The 
the second edition of Mutant City Blues. By Robin D. Laws. And now with added Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Is now in print from Pelgrane Press. Grab your Quaid diagrams and solve the crimes of a near future, where 1% of the population wields superpowers. As members of the elite heightened crime investigation unit, you and your fellow detectives solve crimes involving the city's mutant community. When a mutant power is used to kill, you catch the case. When it's a mutant victim in the chalk outline, you get the call. New features include the ability to go beyond the badge with a private investigator campaign frame. A simplified push system to amplify your investigative abilities. Expanded chase rules. And a spiffy new cover by comics artist extraordinaire, Gene Ha. Find it at your favorite retail store. Or use the voucher code DIAGRAM2020 to get 15% off at the Pelgrane store. It's time to enter the cobwebbed environment of the old police vault, where we're going to go in and we're going to pull out all sorts of files. These files are going to go way back to the early 1800s, because uh, folks were not just in the crime blotter, but at the behest of beloved Patreon backers Will Ferguson and Felicity Pyatt, we are in an old-timey edition of the crime blotter, uh, where we are going to look at the Red Barn murder. Because can true crime... And being interested in true crime doesn't start with Netflix. Oh, no. All the sensationalism of dramatization and uh, fascinated uh, press and excited details and speculation. We have a, a media frenzy emanating from Suffolk in uh, 1827 uh, when a woman named uh, Maria Martin, who's 25 years old, is shot dead uh, by her lover, William Corder, who is 22 years old. And this spins into a whole press and police and media phenomenon that uh, still reverberates uh, down to us today. Uh, so, Ken, take us to Polstead, Suffolk, and the Red Barn. All right. Polstead is a tiny little village in Suffolk. It is famous literally only for this, and uh, it was famous for this. The Red Barn, which was so-called because it had one uh, sort of an eave that was covered in red tile, the rest of it was covered in thatch, um, was disassembled by uh, souvenir hunters. It was taken down to the last toothpick, literally turned into toothpicks. To and be, and that's uh, not the only souvenirs that get taken in this story. No, it is not. But uh, you can no longer see the Red Barn, although you can see the uh, the inn in which uh, the inquest was held. Lots of bits of Polstead still standing. But in uh, May of 1827, what was standing in Polstead was Maria Martin, uh, she was a, a young woman, 25 years old in 1827, and she was maybe a little bit of a good time gal. She had had other children by other men. Uh, she was not necessarily averse to lovers and uh, boyfriends. And one such boyfriend was a guy named William Foxy Quarter. Uh, he was 22. Right. And, and unlike a lot of true crime sensations, this is not about people in the upper crust, but Maria Martin is the daughter of a mole catcher. Yeah. Good, <laughs> good gig. Whereas yeah. William Corder, of course, practiced the traditional Suffolk trades of forging and pig rustling. So, um, uh, William Corder, uh, was entangled with, uh, or entangled himself with Maria Martin and what one thing led to another. And he inveigles her into meeting him at the red barn so that they can elope to Ipswich 
and be married. Apparently there would be problems in Polstead if you got married down at the local church. Maria Martin, I'm sure, was as aware of those as the next person. So she goes off to the Red Barn and is never seen again on the night of May 18th, 1827. Um, people then ask William Corder, where's Maria Martin? And he says, oh, she's on the Isle of Wight. Uh, we got married. She's living on the Isle of Wight, you know, doing yeah. stuff. And, and you can't see her because she's uh, hurt her hand. Yeah. Uh, oh, because my family objects. Uh, right. Oh, hey, what, what business is it of yours? You got any pigs? And uh, so people would change the subject. But... Someone who did not change the subject was her stepmother, Anne Martin. Her stepmother was uh, not an old uh, uh, bell dame. She is a, a young woman as well. And some people have thought that maybe uh, William Corder continued pursuing Anne Martin because they were both there and had something in common. But at some point, she has prophetic dreams that say her daughter's body, her stepdaughter's body is lying in the red barn. And so, right. and at some point it's like almost immediately after she goes missing. Right. Well, I mean, she starts having the dreams a little bit later than that because it takes until April of the next year for someone to go, uh, one assumes the long suffering, Mr. Martin to go dig up the red barn and look in the bottom of the feed bins. And sure enough, there is her body in a sack. Well, that's what, her ghost told her stepmother in her dream. Of exactly. course, that's where she would be. Yeah. So anyway, she's found. She has a confusing medical uh, post-mortem in that they're not sure if she was stabbed in the eye or shot or stabbed some other place. And also, there is a green handkerchief around her neck, which is identified as belonging to William Corder. William Corder has, meanwhile, possibly around the time the prophetic dream started making their way around the village inns, decamped to London, where he ran a phenomenally successful Lonely Hearts ad, had literally hundreds or even thousands of responses, got married to another lady named Maria, and runs a ladies' boarding house in Brentford, but the local cop in Polstead knows a guy in London, a detective named James Lee, and James Lee sort of goes undercover, goes out to Brentford and says, I'd like to board my daughter here. Aha, you're William Corder. Uh, William Corder is boiling eggs, is not able to put up a resistance. Uh, they grab him. They search his stuff. They find a French passport, which is, of course, evidence at the very least of intending to flee, if not evidence of general depravity. And... He is uh, taken away, uh, put on trial, found guilty. Uh, he writes out a confession after he is found guilty. They indict him for nine separate crimes, including uh, kidnapping, because they're not sure what he did. So they indict him for stabbing her and for shooting her. And so when they try him, he's found guilty of murdering her. Uh, he confesses that he accidentally shot her. They were arguing and the gun accidentally went off. Uh, this, of course, does not get you off being hanged in 1828. And so he is hanged on August 11th and uh, his body is taken down where it is galvanized by medical students who happen to be in the area and they phrenologize his skull. And of course, once you've uh, looked at a murderer's skull, you uh, notice that his skull is full of secretiveness, acquisitiveness, destructiveness, philoprogenitiveness and imitativeness. But very little benevolence or veneration, Robin. It turns out that when you examine skulls phrenologically, it's just as good as a psychological profile, even better. 
some would say. It's it's very precise. Yes. And, uh, you know, except for the fact that it, it's meaningless nonsense, I don't know why we abandoned phrenology. Exactly. Because it's not like we abandoned meaningless nonsense, historically. Anywho, well, we come up with new generational meaningless nonsense. That's right. Kids, they, all, they don't like yesterday's meaningless nonsense, and that's what's wrong with the world. Anywho, there is a uh, trial record made and bound up in his skin, because why not? Uh, once you've you know, made the body jump around with electricity. You're, you're ready to go. And, uh, they, uh, sell off the hangman's rope as souvenirs. Reports vary, but there are between two and 20,000 people watching him get hanged. The broadsheet describing the murder may be the best selling broadsheet in the history of broadsheets. It, it runs 1.6 million copies sold. There is a play. There are many plays, uh, written about the case. Uh, they are being performed during the trial and during the execution, and they become possibly collectively the most performed play in the 19th century, which is something indeed. It's like the Tiger King being number one in Netflix. It, yes, except that, well, actually, they may have had a pandemic. It was 1828, but it was probably cholera. So it was a whole different thing. <laughs> but anywho, there's a giant whoop de doo about this relatively domestic sort of true crime, but as is the case, some things grab you, some things don't grab you. Right. And the story continues in a bunch of different ways. Uh, for example, his skeleton has a long career in, in show business. Exactly. Initially, it is uh, displayed with an articulated arm with an arm pole that points to the donation box of the museum it's in. But it finally winds up in the Hunterian Museum at the Royal College of Surgeons in England. And it was taken off display in 2004. <laughs> so that's a good long run for a skeleton. That's a good long, a good long run. So, and, and there's another exciting parallel because uh, James Lee, this is not his only exciting case because uh, in 1838, he arrests someone named Thomas Milbank, who then confesses to being Springheeled Jack, which is possibly true and certainly exciting, right? Uh, and certainly eleptonic. So exactly, you know. absolutely on brand, right? Um, as is the fact that Quarter's skull was basically lifted from the West Suffolk Hospital, which is where they had the arm that pointed to the uh, donation box. A doctor named uh, John Kilner lifted it from the hospital and was a Red Barn murder memorabilia collector. So he's obviously also a serial killer, but we don't know anything about that. After a series of unfortunate events, he believes that the skull is cursed, apparently. J John Kilner was a man prone to neurasthenia. One would have liked to have phrenologized his skull. Um, and he uh, gave it to a buddy of his who then also had bad luck with it, and they finally paid for the skull to be buried, and then I guess it was dug up and put in the Hunterian Museum to be reunited with its body. Yeah, there's a cursed skull. It's it's not on the skeleton in our important institution. <laughs> let's let's dig it up. Right. Nothing bad ever happens after you put a cursed skull on display. Yes, and uh, I I'm not I was not able uh, in a cursory search to find details of John Kilner's cursed skull and his murder collection, but. I'm sure that uh, if I uh, spent a little bit longer, I'm sure John Kilner would would open up like a flower. So maybe another day. Anyhow, that can be a little activity for people at home. Uh, it, it stayed a big deal. Uh, it was made into a movie, a big 1935 movie that sort of established the conventions of melodrama in, in many ways in, in 30s crime films. Uh, is totally forgotten because it's apparently 
uninteresting in every other respect. It has like a 76 minute running time, but in Ontario, it was cut to 50 minutes. So there must have been a blood curdling 26 minutes of it by the standards of uh, 1936 Ontario. Plus, I believe that the movie went in depth into Maria Martin's bad character. And that is the sort of thing you don't want in a movie about a uh, a, a murdered lady. And again, right. bad character from 1935. I say nothing against Maria Martin. God knows Polstead Suffolk must have been dull as a dirt house. So get your fun wherever you can, Maria Martin. I don't know how dull Polstead is because it has ghosts, Ken. Oh. It's known for a ghostly carriage. Mm-hmm. Its rectory is haunted. There's a floating nice. nun. Well, su- suddenly not wanting to be married at Polstead Church becomes a, a more reasonable <laughs> assumption. There's ghostly children are sometimes seen playing out in the back behind the rectory. And uh, the rectory is also prone to a phantom strangler. Who, if he takes a dislike to the rector, will then attempt to asphyxiate him. Well, that's uh, th- that's as bad as having a cursed skull littering the place around. So, yeah, Polstead. Yeah. The, the media portrayals uh, continue. There's a 1991 play by Christopher Bond, who's best known for writing the book for uh, Sondheim Sweeney Todd, called The Mystery of Maria Martin and the Murder in the Red Barn. And it, too, uh, harkens back to the uh, 19th century stage melodramas and is uh, a, a comment on, on that. So... We've got ghostly visions. We've got a curse. We've got other ghosts at Polstead. We've got Spring Hill Jack. I think we have sort of an embarrassment of riches when it comes to trying to organize them all uh, into a, a, a scenario. How do we wrangle those all together? And we've also got, you know, dream visions on a red barn. And yeah. I think, I mean, th- there's a lot of things. First of all, the 1830s in general, uh, 1820s and 30s, the sort of very early Victorian, very late uh, Regency uh, it's not even the Regency anymore. Uh, he's freaking king. They're so full of of sort of the the raw material of what will be the modern world, and and it hasn't been put together yet. But it's very pregnant in terms of story possibilities. So just I recommend to anyone digging around and finding out what's going on in the 1820s and 30s because it's a it's a big fertile time for underground sneaking. Uh, this this murder is is beautifully archetypical. Obviously, it's a huge eye catcher for the population. You have um. Uh, I would say that red barn probably becomes a tulpa barn. I think that if you think of any sort of, you know, uh, psychic crime investigator, and you can imagine them having the vision of the red barn. I, I think I was in unstable people and turns them into killers. Right. I've seen, I've seen, you know, that, you know, red barn be alluded to in like the X-Files. They probably don't even know that they're doing it. It's just a visually striking image. And so... I, I think that the red barn itself is opening up a tunnel into the, you know, the sort of the toposphere, if you will, and, uh, is, is acting as a, a magnet or a, or a focus for an awful lot of, of seemingly true crime energy that has also got a, uh, an undeniable, uh, occult frisson, even though there may or may not be anything specifically occult in any of the given crimes that are being uh, recreated every day on basic cable. Right. And you can also look at it as the, as a template for what becomes a sensation in a true crime story. It has a young, attractive female victim. Initially, when you hear about it, oh, it's a shooting, that's not very grisly. But then when you hear the details of uh, the discovery of the body and the possibility that she was killed in uh, more outlandish ways, it's got that uh, grisly murder method. It has the uh, perpetrator is a fugitive for a while, which is also very essential for uh, most true crime stories becoming uh, a big deal. So you have the dramatic capture. And really the only thing 
then missing from the formula is uh, her class that uh, normally uh, you would expect some uh, that a lot of these uh, big uh, scandal crimes uh, somehow uh, envelop uh, the the upper crust, which is uh, an exception here. But there's just enough going on there with the added ghostly visions that I think, uh, you know, cranked it up a notch and, and made it a big sensation. Yeah, I think that, I mean, it's very much sort of a, 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 a an object lesson in what becomes a true crime sensation. And I think it's it's telling that when I was reading the details of the case, I immediately assumed that uh, William Corder was older than she was. And in fact, he was younger. But even back in the day when they were putting them on stage, they made William Corder older. So that the sort of old man threatening a young woman model that everyone recognized from literally everyday life could be put out on the stage and, and exorcised that way. And I think that's an interesting element is that the, that sort of uh, dyad gets immediately imposed onto the actual facts of the case when one assumes that painting William Quarter as sort of a, a, a young uh, buck spree killer would also have been attractive. But because uh, we have this young sympathetic woman in it, now we have to change it around and make him an, an old predatory male to fit some pattern that people recognize. I think that was just a fun psychological uh, thing to look at in, in terms of how the melodrama is presented. Uh, right, because if the uh, facts are uh, not sensational in the right way, you could change them on the good yep. old uh, stage. Exactly. Just as James Lee and the other arresting officer were uh, telescoped into one character with the great name of Pharos Lee, uh, which uh, surely he became a tulpa or uh, a, uh, a gumshoe character at the very least. One, one, one hopes that he's like, uh, you know, cousins with Staggerly. Exactly. Right? Well, now that we've got multiple tulpas, uh, it's time for us to uh, head on out. And uh, I think I hear some popcorn popping in the lobby. Oh, goody. I love popcorn. The Best of Askfagelm is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Avoid a simulation of this podcast going under by throwing in with such estimable Patreon backers as... Trung Boy. Stephen Hammond. Derek Heimforth. Andrea Coletta. And Derek McMullen. The whirr of the projector. We've still got cigarette smoke curling up past the light. We've still got stuff on the floor. And we are, as always, headed for the center aisle center seats where we are going to look at 
horror cinema essentials. And we're, as I say, we're uh, still smoking cigarettes because it's the 1980s still. Well, m- maybe in Oklahoma, but in in uh, in Toronto, there's the, the smoking has ended in the mid 80s in the theater. Smoking has ended all. Well, I think we were still smoking up until I left. But there we are. Um, yeah, we, we left off uh, in 1984. And guess what? We resume in 1984. Uh, horror remains the province of the auteur. It remains the province of the guy who's directing on the cheap, which is another word for auteur in Hollywood. And it remains ironic in intent right. or in uh, deliverance, because these are people who've grown up. They're almost reflexively referencing older horror films. And in uh, many cases, they are also putting a sort of ironic spin on the earnestness of uh, culture at the time. Right. And their VHS is still a delivery system that enables things to become hits after their initial release. Some of those become hits in theaters, the first couple of them definitely so, but others of them uh, develop cult followings uh, later. And uh, also in the 80s is where we are developing basically the uh, tropes and the patterns that uh, continue to define commercial blockbuster cinema to the, this day, uh, which is why many of the 80s films that we talked about last week or that we'll talk about here uh, have already been remade mm-hmm. and uh, never well. Yeah, I'm going to say never. Yeah, but uh, certainly one that uh, has been rebooted a couple of times and had a zillion sequels is Wes Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street from 1984, uh, which is an interesting blend of taking the uh, slasher killer and then adding a strong horror fantasy element to it. Uh, Freddy Krueger, played by Robert Englund, becomes one of the iconic horror characters, and the uh, premise, which is that he uh, hunts teenagers in their dreams in order to get vengeance on the parents who uh, killed him, this convention allows him sort of a- escape the sort of uh, uh, grotty beginnings of the getting murdered at camp genre and uh, create these uh, big, surreal, crazy special effects uh, set pieces. You can, and, you can just imagine all the Italian Gialli directors slapping themselves in the head and thinking, why didn't we think of that? Oh, there's a reason for this to not make sense. <laughs> and, oh. and the character interaction scenes feature human beings. It's weird. And the Freddy character even more so later on in the series, he's actually more legitimately scary and nasty in the first one. But as it goes, it establishes the wisecracking uh, comedy murderer. And uh, as it goes further and further into irony later in the series, he becomes almost more of a Bugs Bunny uh, who slashes your throat. Yeah, it's uh, the there is a comical, a dark comical aspect of the first movie, which is, I still say, the, the best one of them. People often speak very highly of 1987's Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors as being the other high point of the of the series. I don't know the series well enough to say because to me, they've all sort of blurred. Uh, but he does become, as you say, more of a, a trickster, prankster, self-clowning bad guy in a way that uh, Michael Myers and uh, Jason Voorhees do not really. But that's because he's the only one of the two of the three with a personality. So, of course, his personality evolves. And because of the ironic tendencies of the original film, it evolves towards comedy. Uh, but the first movie is actually legitimately good. It's legitimately scary. It's super creative. Uh, it's very strong. And it also made a ton of money. It's everything you want a film to be, quite frankly. And I I think it still holds up uh, today as a horror film in a way that certainly the original Friday the 13th does not. 
um, and that I think nothing in that series does. I think Nightmare and possibly Nightmare 3, you could still watch for other reasons than you are high and get something out of it. And speaking of movies uh, that are great to watch under any sort of chemical circumstance, uh, we talk about another 1984, another Annus of of horror. This one, Gremlins by the great Joe Dante. Uh, Gremlins, forget your It's a Wonderful Life's, forget your uh, Miracle on 34th Street's, Gremlins, the greatest Christmas movie ever made, a, <laughs> a fantastically, just a, a, a movie in which Joe Dante's innate urge to drop anarchic bombs on the universe goes off possibly in its purest form. And also, I think in, in an overlooked way, the human victims of the Gremlins are genuinely good and heroic and interesting in a way that human victims generally aren't in these movies. The, 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 the little family that, that gets gremlins brought into their midst by the, uh, goof father, um, uh, and, and unleashed on them, uh, all respond in individual ways that speak to them as characters. The characters are surprisingly deep, which is one of the reasons that gremlins repays watching over and over and over again. But it's, uh, it, it's a terrific film maybe a little bit orientalist when you have the notion that the gremlins are bought from a shop in Chinatown. And when they're taken out of the safe confines of foreign weird Chinatown and taken to proper America, that's when they go berserk. But if you let that, that basic conceit slide, um, you have a, I want to say almost perfectly structured, uh, classic film. And of course the little gremlin, uh, gizmo once more practical effects beat, special effects beat uh, uh cgi there was no cgi in 1984 but gizmo is exciting and fun in exactly the same way that baby yoda is exciting and fun and it's for the same reason they're both cool puppets they're not stupid golf balls that people have to emote to use the puppet you coward use the puppet you coward <laughs> what's remarkable <laughs> about that is it's a big hollywood release targeted to kids that is a and and just uh, really frightening and upsetting. There's, of course, that famous monologue that comes out of nowhere about Phoebe Kate's uh, Christmas memories. Oh, God, yes. It's it, it's absurdist. It's literally a moment of absurdist, which you never see done right yeah. and is done perfectly. Uh, sympathetic characters getting uh, uh, murdered by the gremlins. It's, uh, you know, they don't come back. They're being killed. And the innovation that producer Steven Spielberg introduced was don't let Gizmo transform, uh, keep him as the hero. So the original Dante mm -hmm. version uh, would have perhaps even gone too far dark. But this one is a really fascinating balance of uh, big commercial corporate Hollywood intentions uh, being thoroughly subverted and empowered uh, by uh, Dante. We should also note at this time that although it's not going to be one of our essentials, Gremlins 2 is an essential film for understanding anything about human society. Uh, Gremlins 2 is better than Foucault. Watch it. Love it. Yes, it's an outright comedy, <laughs> but really, uh, Dante has been given a budget and carte blanche, and he gets to uh, flip the bird. And Christopher Lee. <laughs> yes. Now we come to uh, Fright Night, directed by Tom Holland in 1985, a nouveau vampire movie that also harkens back to Peter Bogdanovich's targets, because... It is uh, in a sort of a lesser way also about uh, a confrontation between a scary uh, movie campy TV host played by Roddy McDowell and an actual uh, real predatory uh, vampire played by Chris Sarandon. And uh, of course, there's a male ingenue to be the, the lead. And uh, it has uh, 
I, I think it's uh, its sense of energy and fun and the idea that uh, it's kind of heading in the action horror direction, but also is just uh, an, an example of a, a really well-executed, solid, uh, entertaining movie that is uh, uh, scary, but not too scary for your mom. Yeah, the uh, one of the things that is good about Fright Night, and there's a lot that's good about Fright Night, is the way that it tonally manages the shift from sort of teen comedy to legitimate sort of crime suspense thriller to straight up horror uh in terms of you know special effects and monsters and uh, and lighting and the whole rest of it it does all of those tones well in a way that very few films certainly no very few films made on that budget uh with fundamentally unknown actors except for of course the great Roddy mcdowell managed to do and i feel like fright night is it's maybe not a horror essential but it was a movie that was so essential to my understanding of horror and all the possible directions it could go. Fright Night played uh, in theaters in Ada, Oklahoma, possibly forever. It may still be playing there. And whenever we were bored, we'd go watch Fright Night. And it was uh, a great time. And it was also just a, a great movie to sort of watch be put together, even though you know everything that's going to happen in it. It's just a a great example of the vampire film done correctly. The vampire is a monster. His predation works correctly. All the little vampire elements are taken and then run through that sort of teen comedy lens and then twisted back around to be legitimately scary. So it's a great genre play as well. It's, I don't think anyone puts it on their list of, you know, the hundred greatest horror films ever, but I think it, in terms of best of breed, uh, you're going to go a long time before you make a movie as good as Fright Night, or in this case, two years before you make a movie as good as Fright Night. Right. Well, we've we've given up on on trying to wrap this up in a few segments. So, <laughs> and and speaking of movies that I watched endlessly in 1985, uh, Stuart Gordon's Reanimator, the best uh, Lovecraft movie possibly, certainly the best Lovecraft movie made from a garbage Lovecraft story. This is the the movie that uh, brought. Jeffrey Combs to the forefront of C-list horror uh, love, and righteously so. It has a great Bernard Harriman-esque score. Stuart Gordon fills that terrible story with with energy once more. Comedy, black comedy, that is played relentlessly straight by the participants, which is the best kind of black comedy. And yes, it's tongue in cheek, and the tongue is inside a severed head. Inside a severed head, it is, and it's not the severed head's tongue. That's the best part. It is a heck of a heck of a movie on every respect. Uh, even without the Lovecraft connection, obviously the Lovecraft connection is what got myself and my Call of Cthulhu group to go watch it uh, endlessly again in 1985. And I, I think people forget how great it was in 1985 in terms of, I think, you know, it is one of the few movies that the Stuart Gordon watched the thing and said, Oh, we can do that now. And sort of his use of special effects to reinforce the horror and to reinforce tone is one of the best, I think in, in, in the decade. Yeah. So it's, it's the height of eighties irony. It's uh, Gordon fusing his weird experimental uh, Chicago theater background with, his uh, subversive uh, love of horror. It is both uh, an extremely Lovecraftian film and not at all a tone of any Lovecraft story. <laughs> in fact, would, would, would horrify HP were he to uh, see it uh, for all sorts of uh, reasons and is absolutely uh, the, you know, there wouldn't be an HP Lovecraft film festival without reanimator. We have yet to see a, a truly 
uh, faithful Lovecraft film that is also uh, really good in firing on all cinematic cylinders the way uh, this one is. And so uh, this absolutely uh, captures the uh, the flag. And right up there in uh, pushing uh, creature special effects and gore and uh, revulsion and a sense of humor is uh, The Fly. David Cronenberg again, 1986. I saw this in a movie theater on the street where the character walks by uh, in uh, 86. And uh, this is sort of Jeff Goldblum's, not his first performance, but the, his breakthrough. Sort of his coming out. Yep. Gina Davis is uh, just as wonderful and sympathetic in it. Uh, this is another remake, of course, uh, and uh, it takes the original, uh, somewhat uh, comparatively decorous horror of the original version and uh, makes it into sort of the quintessential commercially viable body horror film. So uh, if people have only seen one Cronenberg movie, this is is probably the one, (laughs) probably uh, the one they've seen. And it's one, it's got a lot of pathos to it. And it is, uh, it's the core theme of horror, which is the terror of uh, senescence and death and decay uh, that eventually uh, comes for all of us. Another film, uh, one that is, perhaps not as strictly ironic as a fright night, but is a better vampire film. And this is, I would say the best vampire film of the eighties, which was a pretty great decade for vampire films. Uh, Catherine Bigelow's near dark. I think this was either Bigelow's first feature or very close to it. It is a sort of a revisionist Western in that the uh, Western cowboy heroes are all vampires and the vampires are all terrible. Uh, it is also a poignant love story. It is set in Oklahoma, which, of course, made me uh, happy, not quite walking past the street that I watched the film on because it was filmed, I think, mostly in Iowa and Kansas. But uh, still, I enjoyed the notion that somewhere there was an RV full of cowboy vampires driving around committing heinous atrocities. Uh, it's beautifully paced. Uh, every set piece is perfect. The characters, Lance Henriksen as sort of the patriarch of the old vampire clan is amazing. Uh, people uh, cavil and pick nits at the ending, which I suppose is fair, but uh, the movie is so strong and so good that uh, lifting the ending from Nosferatu, I don't feel is a sin myself. Yes, it's a, a great sort of fusion of uh, sort of the, the, it's the horror equivalent of a rural noir movie. And it takes the, uh, the vampire uh, out of the Gothic castle takes the vampire out of the uh, New York club scene of the hunger and uh, gets you a uh, grotty American uh, road movie vampires. And Lance Henriksen's breakthrough character actor role is in this. And uh, it's a film that is uh, very much in a high eighties aesthetic, but absolutely uh, unlike some of them holds up uh, today. We were talking before about uh, body horror and uh, one uh, objection to, for example, the works of David Cronenberg by the late film critic Robin Wood uh, was that he felt that body horror was in some way uh, anti-gay, that it uh, attacked uh, the gay man's uh, sense of uh, them, themselves and uh, that uh, the uh, revulsion of the body was uh, conservative and therefore uh, nothing a, a, a gay man would ever want to approach. So along comes Clive Barker and Hellraiser <laughs> to... Up the body horror stakes explicitly uh, connected to uh, BDSM and create another horror universe that takes the sort of uh, a torture element that is going to come into uh, horror in a bigger way even later, but fuses it into a world of uh, highly sexualized 
uh, demons and violence. And for a while, Clive Barker is as dominant uh, a figure in horror as Stephen King was before him. Yeah. And uh, in a lot of ways, Clive Barker has a fantastic, fantasy imagination where Stephen King has a uh, crime imagination, I suppose, if you're saying what sides of the horror box do they come from? Uh, Clive Barker was, of course, by 1987, very, very famous, very, very best-selling. They'd made failed movies of his stuff before. He insisted on getting uh, the right to direct. He did direct. I don't think that, I mean, we've talked about a bunch of movies that every one of them is almost you know, if not note perfect is an clear a game of directing Hellraiser is not that, but it is at the very least a very clear expression of what Clive Barker wants the film to be. It's even more of an auteur statement than gremlins is, I think. And in that level, it succeeds a uh, pinhead. The, the main Cenobite again, becomes another horror icon. And in terms of, you know, a writer understanding his own material, uh, I think uh, Barker is better at that than Stephen King, quite frankly. And Hellraiser is is evidence of that. Um, he's never going to, I think, be a great horror director uh, the way that he was a great horror writer. But, you know, even the the, the, the lesser Barker directions are, are still pretty interesting. And I think Hellraiser is his high point and is very much worth watching, not just for Barker's cosmology and his imagination, but for the way that he's translating what is in many ways, a visual novelist's imagination uh, to the screen. I, th- I think that it succeeds way more than it fails. It is by no means a uh, a seamless classic or a or a perfect Swiss watch of a movie, but uh, it is genuinely unsettling in a lot of different directions. Right. And uh, the last one that we have uh, time to get to uh, this week uh, is Evil Dead 2, uh, Sam Raimi from 1987. Speaking of directorial names that will uh, go on to big things. Uh, he, uh, with a little bit of help from the Coen brothers, took a, a budget of uh, $2.98 and made the original Evil Dead, which uh, is uh, sort of a slasher aesthetic, but begins to introduce demons and is actually uh, has a genuine nasty and unsettling quality. But it's in two that he uh, reveals uh, his uh, desire to be the Tex Avery of horror. Uh, Tex Avery, of course, is the uh, sort of a rebel uh, cartoonist from the era of the classic cartoons. And here, Raimi is a cartoonist with rubber special effects and the very rubbery visage of uh, Bruce Campbell. Yes, in, in Bruce Campbell, he finds his Bugs Bunny. Exactly. And <laughs> the over-the-top gore comedy, the uh, homage to uh, uh, Ray Harryhausen, which, of course, will uh, come up even more in the uh, even uh, funner and more Saturday afternoon matinee uh, Army of Darkness. But this is the pivotal... It's, it's a weird example where it's the second movie in the franchise that really launches and, and defines that franchise and I think is a great place to sort of close out our uh, discussion of the ironic horror 80s. In that it is ending on, on a literal high note. It does take all the threads that we've talked about and sort of ties them up tight and then adds... It's it's not just Raimi looking back and recapitulating. He's adding his own uh, hyper frenetic camera style, I guess is is what I would call it. And it's something that you'll see him introduce into Spider-Man later on when he gets budgets for big movies. Every so often he tries to step on his own instincts, which is always a terrible idea. But Evil Dead 2 is it, it, it's really his coming out film in a lot of ways. It's certainly Bruce Campbell's coming out film, speaking of horror icons. And it is 
as good a melding of horror and comedy and straight up roller coaster thrills as any horror movie ever made. I would, I would put it on those three metrics. I would put that it up there on the absolute triple A list. Uh, it's, it, it's an amazing film and all love. And just before we uh, jump out of the, the ironic eighties, there are a couple of other filmmakers who do not quite have the chops to make the essentials list, but are uh, people that you want to discuss in that context. And that's, uh, Larry Cohen of uh, The Stuff and It's Alive and Cue the Winged Serpent, which is perhaps, I think, the the best of his films with an oddball performance by uh, Michael Moriarty and a, a rare venture into ironic kaiju movie. Yeah, it's it, it, and only Larry Cohen could really have done that, I feel. Right. And, and also a, a grotty New York Street movie. And yeah. A, and yeah, the, comedy. yeah the, the problem with Larry Cohen is never he doesn't have enough idea for what the film should be. <laughs> it's, it's always good stuff going right. on. There, but sometimes there's lapses in, in execution. Oh, yeah. And on a slightly even more down market note, there's Frank Hennenlauter, who did uh, a basket case uh, and uh, brain damage and I think typifies the, the super low rent weird stuff that you can get away with. Uh, when there was a direct video market. Yeah. He's sort of, uh, I, I, I don't know his whole over So I, I'm sure he must've made a movie for trauma, but he sort of, uh, creates the trauma aesthetic even before, uh, trauma does. And that becomes a giant part of the horror ecosystem, even though it has, in my opinion, yet to make a essential <laughs> film, nothing whatsoever to recommend it, but right. uh, we've got plenty of other recommendations uh, coming up uh, next week. When, I think we might even make it all the way into the 90s, Ken. Woohoo! Get your flannel out, everybody. We're heading to the 90s. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes in entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing it's time uh, once more to venture into that most ill-defined of hats the one where, uh, I don't know, it's not clear what's going on until you look out the window, there's an alien big cat screeching out in the moor, and then, oh, wait, yeah, there's, uh, we're going to look over in the corner, and there's the gray alien and the Nordic alien, they're drinking kombucha, but they're kind of, they're kind of side-eyeing, because uh, they're not sure that they appreciate this story, they, I think they consider this somewhat of a, of a force, but definitely 
estimable Patreon backers, Tim Maness and Gene Bauer, and also Tenant Reed, and also everybody, every backer, wanted us to talk about the late 2020 monolith flap. And mm-hmm. Ken, right off the top, I'm going to reveal that as a classicist, to me, a monolith has to have a lith. Right. There has to be lithos. You need the mono part. Yeah. You, have, you have the lith part. You have a stone or, you know, mysterious uh, black emanating 2001 thing. But uh, to me, a monolith is not made out of mirror board and with a glue gun uh, from Home Depot. Uh, but nonetheless, this is what we uh, uh, discover with the uh, appearance of our first monolith. And I guess uh, you've discovered the monolith was, uh, was there for a while. Yeah. Before it was there and started to flap. I mean, I didn't discover it. The, the good people of Reddit, who have literally nothing better to do, discovered it. They went on Google Earth and they looked. And it, sure enough, at some point between July and October of 2016, uh, someone put a 10-foot-tall metal triangular prism in the Red Rock Desert of Utah, in an area of Utah that is very hard to get to. Uh, people say you could only get to it by helicopter if you're going to drop off a 10-foot-tall metal triangular prism. I feel that those people would not have been able to cross the Alps with uh, Hannibal, so I, I question their judgment. Yes. If, if hikers found it, yeah. perhaps hikers could have gotten there. And, and perhaps even carried sections of metal and then built it. Uh, at any rate, it is discovered by the uh, Bureau of Land Management or whoever runs Red Rock Desert. They were flying over tracking bighorn sheep, and uh, they took a picture, and they said, well, that there looks like one of them monoliths from the 2001 movie. And uh, it uh, got put up on the internet, on on their Facebook group, uh, with a little cheeky alien emoji next to it, as a, here's a fun thing we found on our mountain goat searching. And uh, then it became a big sensation, and people trooped to Utah, because uh, as the pandemic drew on, people would literally do anything to get out of the house. And this made angry environmentalists even angrier, and so on November 27th, Four of them came and took the monolith down because it was bad for the environment to have a monolith. And they, and they uh, finger wagged everyone. Just uh, they, they probably had to go lie down. They were so happy at getting to finger wag everyone about the monolith. And they thought, well, that's solved. Except of course it was not in Piatra Niamt, Romania, a similar monolith showed up on November 26th. And it stayed up, and the Romanian government, instead of saying, oh, don't bring us a monolith, they said, great, monoliths, we love it, come, tourists, come look at our monolith. But the monolith was taken down on November 29th by parties unknown. And then uh, another monolith shows up on Pine Mountain in Atascadero, California, and everyone's like, ooh, a mysterious monolith, except it wasn't a mysterious monolith at all. Four area metal workers said, oh, we built the monolith, we thought the other monoliths were cool, so we built one for Pine Mountain, and then angry villagers came and, and destroyed it. Uh, they were very mad. They said, uh, we don't want aliens from space or illegal aliens. So you can get a sense of where their uh, animus was directed, and they knocked it down. And then the metal artists were like, well, we only intended to build it as a prank, but now that bad people don't like our monolith, we're going to rebuild the monolith. Yes. Now, now that we find it, it angers xenophobes. Yes. Now <laughs> it has a, monolith, a purpose. It's a, it's a xenophobe anger, and that's even better. It's not just a, an absurdist statement. 
It's a political statement, the best kind of statement in 2020. And they announced that they're going to rebuild it. And the city of Atascadero said, we welcome you rebuilding your monolith. I have not yet found evidence that it was rebuilt. So once more, the empty gesture, the best kind of gesture in 2020. It's certainly the cheapest gesture. It certainly is. And now, then came the deluge. Monoliths spring up everywhere. Uh, there is a, uh, and, and by the way, people, people, including me, have, have backsassed the internet a lot. But before the internet, you could not have had monolithtracker.com, Robin, one of the great websites. Its job is just to track all the monoliths, and it has an imaginary grading system for how monolithy your monolith is. Uh, the, the best kind is S-class monoliths, like the Utah monolith. Uh, other monoliths are, are, are there lesser. Are points for having a lift in your monolith? No, all the monoliths are, are as you say, they are garbage and wrong. Monolithtracker.com does admit that it's not properly a monolith, but it it's leaning in. They're very uh, descriptivist, not yes. uh, prescriptivist. Pseudolith.com was uh, taken. Right. Mono not lift uh, was too confusing. People couldn't type it. So monolithtracker.com uh, says there are 208 monoliths currently being tracked. That includes the ones that have been taken down. Their current map uh, shows 78 in North America, 91 in Europe, and 13 in the rest of the world. There are monoliths in uh, Australia. There's a monolith in India. There was a monolith uh, put up in Turkey that is currently uh, guarded by the Turkish government. That one turns out to have been set up by the Turkish Air Force to boost the Turkish space program. And then as you look into them, most of the monoliths were like built by area businessmen who thought, people come to watch monoliths. Perhaps they'd enjoy coming and enjoying some gelato while they watch the monolith. And so uh, many, many of your monoliths turn out to be made by local businesses. A lot more of them are made by local pranksters. There's a monolith that showed up on Fremont Street in, in downtown Las Vegas, probably built by a casino. Similarly, the monoliths exist. And now the weird pattern matching, fun having brain of people is, is going berserk. And so people will build monoliths until uh, we can actually go out and do fun things again. I think. Yes, I think there may be a sharp drop in in uh, monolith construction. Yes. So the thing about this, of course, is that it's no stretch whatsoever to fit this into uh, one of our games because this is just straight up esoteric. Absolutely. The, uh, idea in, in the esoterics is that the uh, evil decentralized organization uh, called the esoterics, uh, one of their MOs is to create little flaps and hoaxes and uh, then that creates the psychic energy that allows them uh, to uh, take these uh, uh, mundane events that are uh, somehow uh, psychically disjunctive or just in this case attract a lot of attention and then make things steadily uh, weirder. So in the scenario version of this, it doesn't even have to be uh, one of the better classier uh, monoliths. could be a gelato monolith. And then all of a sudden uh, there, you know, there's a killing nearby or a, uh, a bucket of blood is found at the monolith and it appears, oh no, there's rituals being done. Or, you know, someone goes on monolithtracker.com and finds a way to knock out all of the fake monoliths and show you that, oh no, here's an occult sigil. And eventually in the Esoterrace, the that creates a, a break in the membrane and then uh, creatures are able to pour through from the outer dark uh, into uh, reality. And it would have to at least start out being something sort of monolithy. So uh, gray alien over in the corner, uh, you're going to get a gig. Uh, you're going to show up uh, at a monolith. You'll be sighted. And then the next sighting will be one of the uh, weirder uh, off-brand uh, UFO entities, one of the more overtly monstery ones that uh, started appearing 
uh, like in the 50s and 60s before uh, it all got regularized into the gray and then an actual uh, demon will occur and either the esoterists themselves will interact with the demon or it will just go uh, crazy and that's where the heroes come in uh, trying to uh, you know tamp down the monster incident, find out who's responsible for starting the monoliths, uh, you know, the used car salesmen, they're a distraction. Uh, they may be, uh, you know, unknowingly uh, fostering this, but you're not allowed to shoot them. You have to find out the uh, the real uh, villains behind the piece. And the real problem is that they're everywhere. Everybody's doing a monolith. And you have to uh, separate out the uh, actual uh, sinister creators of this whole phenomenon uh, from all of the uh, uh, hangers-on who are just doing it for the... Uh, Instagram uh, glory, but are accidentally amplifying uh, bad monolith energy because every monolith opens the gate or tears the veil a little wider, and that creates problems. Right, and part of the part of the veil out at the end is you have a bunch of badly made monoliths that you show off on the news until people uh, start stop thinking about it as something weirder that reminds them of weirdness, and that it cranks back down to just being sort of a, a prank and a goofy story, and that eventually. A, uh, a kind of a nothing that, that peters out. And on, on that heroic note of the nothing that peters out, uh, we too will peter out, although not with nothing, with a lovely segment leading you into four more lovely segments next week at this same approximate time. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Keep this podcast sturdier than a Home Depot monolith by joining beloved backers... Jacob Boersma. Mike Merles. Rich Renallo. Ryan Mannix. And Scott Jones. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Comment on your Zoom workplace as our reluctant Phoenix says, oh no, not this again. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. 